The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by leaguetees.com.au. The retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies and all things retro footy. That's leaguetees.com.au. Name the game series from Australian football video. You ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? Folks, let me warn you. It's bruising, bloody and very much in your face. And we've pulled out stuff that would make a 16 stone wharfie cry. But a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story, Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins, the road to victory, Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints, St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. Welcome to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. I'm Dylan Leach. Dermot Brereton's Hits and Memories. From male boy at the VFL to the biggest and most controversial name in Australian rules football. Five-day premierships and five more under lights with Hawthorne and Brereton was at the forefront the whole time. The swagger was his trademark, but behind that front was a footballer without equal. A man of rare courage who could turn a game. Dermot Brereton, champion footballer, media personality, superstar. Any tag will fit. This is his story. His thoughts of the men who he played with and against. A rare and revealing insight into one of the game's greats. My guest reviewer this week is one-time ABC Race Around the World participant, public speaker, former Hawthorne Under-19 Reserves player, filmmaker, an author of various books, including 1989, The Great Grand Final, Mr. Tony Wilson. Boys will be boys. The boys will be boys. You know they don't have a chance. boys will be boys. boys will be boys. My reviewer this week on the Australian Football Video Film Festival is Mr. Tony Wilson, and he's reviewing... Dermot Brereton's Hits and Memories. Tony, welcome. Thank you, Dylan. What a movie. What a great of the genre. What an honour to be selected to review this one. Now, tell me, Tony, you actually have a pretty decent relationship with the Hawthorne Football Club, being an ex-under-19s reserves player and, of course, the great man. So I figured you'd be a great person to come on and talk about this uh, masterpiece of the cinema. 
Well, you figured right, Dylan. Um, I uh, was at Hawthorne for four years, uh, but in the actual senior list, I hold the world record for the shortest ever career, drafted in November of 1991 and delisted in the June draft. And, of course, the June draft no longer exists, so that November to June stint is actually untouchable as a short-term AFL, VFL list effort. So, uh, But in that time, I did spend, well, there were plenty of junior years there, so I'd spent four years around, and I did get to know Dermot quite well. And he's one of the great charmers. And this video, his smile lights up this video and his dimples, and he is in full storytelling mode from beginning to end in a way that very few AFL footballers can manage. And, uh, and there's no surprise that he has made a very good career in the media afterwards because uh, all the signs were on display there in the late 90s when Dermot Brereton Hits and Memories was created. Uh, do you want me to ta- I'm going to take you all the way to the start of the movie, Dylan. Um, what a title sequence, can I say. Um, mm. It starts at the blowhole down Shoreham Way and Dermot is asked to gaze out over the waves for an unseemly length of time. He does about 12 seconds staring out to sea while the Back to the Future-esque capital letters, uh, multicoloured shading uh, appears to his left. And, And so for 10 seconds, we have the title sequence and Dermot staring out to sea. And it pretty much sets the tone for the uh, the 80s feel that we're going to get from that point. Oh, we went to the blowhole. Wasn't that unreal? I always say, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I live right near it. I've never seen it. <laughs> it's been a long road from the kids thrust into football in the heat of September, the hard man in the hard team, the swaggering superstar who would play in five premierships, Fashions would change, the style though remained unaltered. For more than a decade, he would be the best player in the hardest position in the game. A match winner, a focal point. And off the field, the Irish in him would rise too. The entertainer, the flamboyant showman. And uh, it really... It really, truly is a greatest hits collection of Dermot. Is it the complete package, you would say? So the thing to understand about Dude is that he combines the sublime with the violent. Uh, It's pretty much his trademark and it's pretty much the go-to stuff of the video. We've got uh, plenty of beautiful highlights. What an athlete, what what a spring, what hands, what what an ability to dominate and control games. Uh, And yet also what an ability to hurt players. And so... Um, we get to see the best and the worst of Dermot, I guess, um, and it is scattered throughout the video. But one thing I picked up actually over the hour and 40 minutes is that he was a much more violent player later in his career than he was earlier in his career. Um, and you see plenty of provocation and plenty of kind of hits on Dermot in the early years, um, but he's pretty much a back-on-his-feet player Um who, who, you know, scampering back to have his shot at goal and milking free kicks and, and the kind of excesses of violence that we see later on. I mean, the worst being Raiden Tallis having his head stomped on at Glen Ferry Oval in 1993, was it? Or 94. 1994, 94, yes. 94. You know, that's, that's kind of uh, Dermot at his cranky, um, old Dermot, you know, behaving badly. But 
young Dermot behaving brilliantly is uh, is a delight to watch. And, and the early parts of the video are dominated by that. And we really do get a taste of young Dermot because not only does it feature, obviously, his first game at Hawthorne, which was in a final, but uh, they really dig deep into the archives and discover Derm playing Teal Cup for Victoria. Well, that's a joy, isn't it? I hadn't seen that before. So I've obviously seen the 1982 debut against North Melbourne and, and he tells that story really well of of being of an ascent through the reserves in 1982. He gets asked to take over on a half forward flank in the reserves a few weeks before the finals and it turns out that that's his position. He's been playing down back for a while in 1982, but he's, he's moved to the half forward flank, dominates in the last weeks of the home and away season and goes on uh, on a spree really in his first ever final. He kicks five goals and they're, they're beautiful goals. That, that kind of trademark Dermot drop punt where he's really within range whenever he's within 45 metres, he kicks some really magnificent long goals in that first game. Um, and so, and so, uh, yeah, he tells, you know, in true Dermot style, he t tells about the excitement of his first game. And then, and then you get, um, and he really has a, a near unparalleled ability to pluck the anecdote. So most footballers don't go into the minutiae and the detail of what happens around the first game, but, but Dermot really nails it. And I, I particularly liked that in the aftermath of this kind of barnstorming first game where Dermot kicks five goals um, on debut and, and puts, puts Hawthorne into the second semi um, after a win against North Melbourne, um, he's papped, like he's chased by a photographer. And, and even though you know that every every cell of Dermot's being is screaming out to be in the paper. He knows that his coach, Alan Jeans, who's a fair old disciplinarian, has said to him very plainly, you are on a media ban, do not be in the paper. And so he ends up in a kind of a, a cat and mouse game around a large tree in Jollymont Park where he's trying to avoid the photo from the paparazzi. And, and he tells that with some relish in the video. And I'm on my way to work and Yabby said, don't speak to anybody. They'll be ringing you at home. They'll get your number from somewhere. And anyway, I'm on the way to work and I've got the mailbag over my shoulder and this bloke jumps out from behind a tree. It literally jumped out like cloak and dagger stuff. And he said, oh, g'day, Dan, can I take your photo? And I said, where are you from? And he said, uh, I'm from the sun in those days. And I said, oh, I'm not allowed. And he said, well, I've got to take it anyway. I said, well, you can't. Yabby will tell me off. I thought, oh, he'll get really dirty, Yabby, if I let my photo be taken. So I ran around one side of the tree, and he's on the other, and it's one of these big oak trees in Jollymont. <laughs> I'm going like that whichever way he went. I was going the other way saying, no, you can't take my photo. So in actual fact, I actually got pretty unnerved from that and uh, wanted to wanted to blame that guy for a poor performance the second up, but uh, no. Not to be. Didn't didn't perform all that well. Second. That's what I like about this uh, this this footy film. It's got it's got the highlights and it's got the 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 draw power of of a, of a fantastic player of the eighties. But it also has the Dermot ability to tell a, a, a funny and an engaging little anecdote like that one escaping the paparazzi. But yes, you did. You did mention the Teal Cup, and that is an extravaganza. For those of us who watched 80s footy, um, there's so many big names played in this Teal Cup game. And I actually attended the the senior game that day. It was uh, more than 91,000 at Waverley, Hawthorne versus Collingwood. And the curtain raiser was uh, Dermot Breton on debut. Sorry, Dermot, Dermot Breton playing Teal Cup under-17s with a star-studded cast. And, 
And it's pure derma. Even in the first 20 seconds of the game, he milks a free kick. He's 60 metres from home and, and he goes for the big torp, which unfortunately fades left and it's a behind, but it, it sets the tone for a, a prodigious talent and, uh, and uh, yeah, a, 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 you know, a, a real showman of, of football. But the free kick is Brereton taken too high with that tackle. Young man kicked seven goals from the half forward flank against Tasmania at Punt Road on Friday. Beautiful spiral punt. It's got distance, but not accuracy. And it's through for a behind. You mentioned that Derm is a great storyteller, but uh, throughout the film, uh, Dermot refers to his coach, Alan Jeans, and also does a brilliant impersonation of him. Yeah, Dermot's got a real flair for that. I mean, all the players of that era have a go. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by Peter Schwab's Alan Jeans as well, but I would give the three votes for an Alan Jeans impersonation to to Dermot, and he uses it to full effect in Hits and Memories. Um, some that come to mind are, he, he mentions the paparazzi chasing around the team. Now, son, I don't want you to speak to the media this week. And, and uh, but then, then when he, when he decides to go for green boots, um, Dermot tells the story of going out to the factory in Ferntree Gully and seeing the fluorescent green leather and having it applied to his feet and fitted and, and then having to have the courage to front up in front of the dour Cheltenham policeman that was Alan Jeans and, uh, and wear his fluorescent green boots for the first time. And he says that he was sort of hiding his feet under the table, but then... Then he sort of heard uh, at, at halftime he's coming and put on the boots and now you're making yourself a target, son, you know, and is there any risk you're going to go and get them dirty? Because apparently uh, Dermot didn't have the best day that day. So put them on and when they're on your feet, my God, they're bright. And uh, Yabby's talking to us in the room, in the little coach's room, and I've sort of gone, curled them around in under the seat and he said nothing. He said nothing, Yabby. And uh, he's come up to me after the game. He said, you're just setting yourself up, son, for people to tear you down if you want to do things like that. But at half time, he's on a roll and this and that and you should be doing this, you blokes down there and this and that. And son, if you want to get those things dirty, you're allowed to. <laughs> I touched it. That was the worst part with them, but... Oh yeah, no, that was a bit of fun. You know, he he really uh, the pay the price speech gets a good run as well. And Jeansy likened it just to a, a young child who saves up his money through all the hard work, you know, doing odd jobs around. He goes to the um, goes to buy himself a pair of shoes. Yeah, he said, and uh, you can buy the cheap ones and put a bit in your pocket, the remainder. But the shoes will give out before the very good pair. And if he had have paid the price worked a little bit longer extra hours to get a little bit more in the pocket to get the absolute good pair, his pride would go up, his social standing would go up and uh, reflection through time uh, would always be as strong, you know, of what he actually did for himself. So we didn't want to uh, say, well, we got there, we didn't quite get there. So we had to pay the price at the time when it was on offer. So Dermot celebrates this this great figure in his life and... And when I spoke to him for 1989, he told endless Alan Jean stories. My favourite that he told was actually getting driven home as a 15-year-old when he was unable to drive, or a 16-year-old um, playing under-19s and reserves footy. Obviously, Jean's had an eye to what this talent was and, and used to drive him as far as Cheltenham on the way home to Frankston. And, and uh, Dermot talked about programming 
you tried to play something on the radio and and uh and gene said on oh, no sir the son the, the radio's never worked in this car you know it was a holden whatever and uh and dermot said it was just a matter that he he couldn't understand the double beep you know the holding in of the of the of, of the preset buttons and and so he casually set the buttons for him for one and a half minutes oh yeah very very good thank you uh dermot <laughs> and uh yeah so he, he he it's he has a lovely ability to share these um these small and personal moments and and when you're making a, a a bio pick as we'd uh or a bio player pick as as you're featuring on your podcast dylan then then that's a real asset the early part yeah. of the film highlights dermot's early career we've mentioned the teal cup we've mentioned his debut in the 1982 semi-final but um Derm just went straight into grand finals and um, his views on the 1983 premiership are quite fascinating. The enormity of the occasion. So I reckon I wasn't too nervous about it. You know, obviously saying, oh, it's fantastic. You're going to be playing in a grand final. But It's almost like he, he wasn't ready or didn't appreciate it. It kind of just flashed up before him that everything fell into place. So it's hard to imagine that 12-month period, isn't it, that he's, he's kicked five goals in a final. He's... Um, played the 1983 season and, and and showing a lot of promise, but he's in this side that just sweeps the final series and wins by 83 points. It's not even he wouldn't have even endured any pressure once the grand final got underway. That, that game was over at the 20 minute mark of the first quarter, and so Dermot's kind of just there. He's he's 18 years old and a premiership player and and on top of the world and and, and he says that. Uh, God, he gives a great. He does a really good Lee Matthews impression as well, and does a and does a <laughs> and explains just what Lethal taught him in those early years. Um, including there was a moment in his first game where Lethal just did, that is just a brutal hit. Um, I can't remember who goes down, but it's a, it's it's Lee's bicep that takes someone out, and then in the grand final, Lee kicked six and. Uh, and, and Dermot does an impression of getting to the grand final parade for the 1983 grand final. And and Alan Jeans said, OK, uh, everyone needs to be on the bus at midday and uh, we'll see you at midday. And and um, and Lee gets into a long conversation with Alan Jeans about whether the bus leaves at midday or whether they arrive at midday and the bus leaves at 12.05. In 83, we're down the back down there in, in the Glenferry uh, rooms of down near the change rooms. And Jeans would say, all right, we've got the grand final parade. Now, that starts at 12.30. So we'll catch a bus from here at 12 and we'll go in and do it, come back. And, he'd, and Lee would say, well, all right. We're getting here at 12 or 5 to 12. And Jeans would look at him and go, well, we'll I just said, we'll catch the bus at 12. And he said... Well, that means we've got to be here at 5 to 12. Well, we might get here. We'll get here at 12, and the bus is meant to be at 12. It'll probably leave a few minutes after. And Lee said, well, let's clarify it then. Let's say we're meeting here at 12, and we're leaving at 5 past 12. And it'll go backwards and forwards, and most of you going, looking at thinking, this isn't serious, is it? <laughs> but it was just because Lee was such a literal, precise person that he needed to know exactly the minute. And it just was really revealing. Like no one ever says that about Matthews that that there was this sort of a need to be precise. That 
the literal interpretation of everything that was said. So it would trouble Matthews to not know if the bus was going at midday or if it was going at 12.05. And he clarified that in all seriousness with Alan James. And, and that's the sort of thing where Dermot can reveal. Like, no, that, that tells you something about Matthews that you just don't hear. And, and it's a great little moment in the film. And it carries on into some great montages as well because any sports film needs a montage and um, naturally in a title called Dermot Brereton's Hits and Memories, the, the montage collections at the start and in between and at the end are, are just perfect, I, I, I personally think. Oh, they were great. And, and so you have to guess what songs people would montage to if you're making Dermot Burton hits and memories. Mm. And no surprise at all, you get Boys Will Be Boys, Perfect. which is some lesser-known lesser known choir boys. Um, uh, Run to Paradise would be too obvious, but Boys, boys Will Be Boys was uh, Run. Boys Will Be Boys. And, and that, that followed up from a comment by Dermot. By and large, I was the nastiest bloke to have that image. And the image he was talking about was being, you know, quicker than the than the strong blokes and stronger than the quick blokes. And, and he makes the that point. And then said about for myself was that no matter who you were, if I played against you, if I didn't have more pace than you, I had more strength. And if I didn't have more strength than you, I had more pace. And I was nastier than everybody. Every little facet that makes a good footballer rolled into one. The image I tried to create was that I had more of those little facets better than yours. You kind of get a good combination of Dermot being strong and quick, um, sometimes hurting people, but mainly jumping very high in that early montage. It's an absolute beauty. And, and you realise what a talent he was and you know and I remember at the time I was there in 89 and already he's getting into a into an injury phase of his career by then and uh, he's only 28 years old I think but but he was a gun 400 runner a gun 2k runner a pretty good 100 meter runner uh, he had a vertical leap of 76 centimeters when he was uh, in his heyday at Hawthorne so you know he's flying and and he had quite a lithe body in those early years as well. And you realise that there, there was just an explosion in his bulk around 88, 89. <laughs> and, you know, I know all the rooms that have always surrounded him, Dylan. And at my launch, uh, Don Scott just went, oh, and when you started taking drugs, that's what he said. <laughs> and it was, uh, I thought it was unbelievable. Uh, I thought it allegedly should have been thrown in there. Um, I didn't see Dermot's face as he said it, but he certainly was massive. Um, in the in the late 80s, his frame was this. Uh, it was a it was a weapon to be able to move that fast on the chicken legs and then hit that hard with that body. I mean, it was amazing. As a kid, all I ever wanted to do was to play in a grand final. Burton judges it beautifully, then kicks, and it's straight through the middle. 
But as Mum said, footballers have to eat right. That's why Tip Top's White High Five is the official footy bread. Because it takes four slices of ordinary white bread to equal the fibre power of one Tip Top White High Five sandwich. Good on your mum. Tip Top's the one. Good on your mum. Good on your mum. Let me take some time out now to talk about our sponsors here at the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Of course, it is the one, the only, leaguetees.com.au. The retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. You know, we know you know the drill. The League Tees footy shop, packed with all the footy tees, badges, jumpers, hoodies, anything retro footy, they've got it. Now, I assume... This week, we've got a lot of Hawthorne fans listening because we are celebrating five-day, five-night Dermot Burden with Dermot Burden's hits and memories. And uh, the Hawthorne range available at leaguetees.com.au is just some absolute beauties. Um, if you want yourself a HFC Finance t-shirt, of course, HFC Finance, sponsors of Hawthorne in the glory days, they've got it. Uh, or maybe you're a bit old school and you want Windvale, which was a bit before Derm's time, but very much uh, on-brand, iconic Hawthorne sponsor. That's there. They've even got a Maybloom's T-shirt before they were even the Hawks. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dermot did a lot of his uh, best work at VFL Park, and their VFL Park range of merchandise is bloody phenomenal. If you love all things Arctic Park, if you love sepia scoreboards, uh, if you just love the glory days of VFL Park... Well, it's there at leaguetees.com.au. So who are you kidding? Get onto your internet browser right now because most of you are probably listening to this on a phone and punch in leaguetees.com.au and just buy, buy, buy because you will look like the coolest kid in school or your workplace or at home, just wherever you are. Leaguetees.com.au is the place to be. Continue on with the grand finals because naturally Dermot's in his what second, third, fourth season of senior football, and grand finals just seem to be the norm. Um, he is—he conveys in one of these pieces to camera that he is filthy about the 1984 grand final. We sprayed kicks everywhere. They just before halftime. If you were to analyse the video, Essendon actually started coming back pretty well before halftime. Didn't make much of a dent on the scoreboard. But they started to run very well. And we just couldn't stop the reversal of the, the game. But we could have killed them off. I forget what our score was at half-time, how much we were up. We could have killed them off at half-time if we had been able to kick straight. But bad kicking, bad football, you know, we should have won that one. But So Hawthorne kicked terribly in 84. I remember that as well. I was in the stands and they were really dominant in the first uh, quarter and a half of the 84 grand final. So there was... a the opportunity to be four or five or six goals up um, by halfway through the second quarter. And Hawthorne kind of blew that um, with some really poor kicking. And then towards the end of the second half, or first half, Essendon get on their bike. And, and Dermot articulates that perfectly. Um, and there was a sense that the, the, the Dons were coming as a side. By 1985, they would be a dominant force. They were a, a really a magnificent football team. Um, and it was a changing of the guard a bit because Hawthorne had been the stronger team in 83 when they've knocked them over by, was it uh, 
80, oh, I can't remember how many points it was. I was, um, I thought it was uh, 81, they 78 them. points. They flogged them. They flogged them. They flogged them. So Essendon come, and at three-quarter time, I remember thinking, we'll lose this. We're 24 points up, but just all the, the wind was blowing one way in terms of momentum and um and and sure enough, it was a, a disaster. Um, as they kicked nine in the last quarter, and you've all seen the highlights with you know Timmy Watson uh, crashing through people and Liam Baker kicking beautiful goals and Paul Weston on fire, and it hurt Hawthorne badly. Um, and in fact, when I was doing the '89 research, you know the obsession with back-to-back flags is partly born of the poor results in the previous attempts by Gene's teams. So 84 was a cough up when they should have won. Um, if they had kicked a bit straighter, 87 was a absolutely diabolical performance in the heat. Hawthorne had played a preliminary final where the wind had changed at quarter time and did three quarters kicking into the wind, were exhausted. Uh, that was the Buccanara versus Melbourne finish. You know, Jimmy Stein's across the mark and Hawthorne were very weary going to the 87 grand final and they play a shocker that day. Dermot's opponent wins the Norm Smith medal, um, embarrasses him to some extent. Um, he wasn't in any way close to, I don't even think 50% fit, but he, he doesn't really talk about that. But Reese Jones wins the Norm Smith and Hawthorne get pumped in 87. And then the third attempt for for back-to-back was the 88-89. So, and, and that's kind of why it became the thing. James had missed 88 with his aneurysm and 89 was the opportunity. So, um, yeah, the, the idea that he has so many grand finals to talk about is, is ridiculous. And his grand final performances, if you leave out 87, are sublime. I mean, there's a real focus... Uh, you see his highlights in 84 are excellent, even though um, I don't think he had a dominant game. In 85, he um, has claims to really winning the Norm Smith. It went to Duckworth, but Dermot kicked eight. Actually, I'd be interested to know, Dylan, because you know your footy history. But everyone always said, and then when I grew up, I always thought Dermot kicked the, the AFL, VFL record number of goals in the grand final mm. with eight. And then I thought it got beaten by Ablett in 89 with nine, and then I start writing the 89 book and my editor picks me up and says, no, Ablett didn't break the record in 89. He equaled Gordon Coventry's record. And and so why did everyone ever, why did anyone ever say that Dermot Brereton held the goal-kicking record in the grand final? Because my understanding is that it's shared. It's a shared record between Gordon Coventry and Gary Ablett. Well, I guess my theory would be is they probably didn't have access to AFL tables when they were doing the broadcast back in 1985. <laughs> so no one could remember. <laughs> no one could remember Coventry kicking his nine. So for, for, yeah. for all we know, Lou Richards and Peter Landy, they saw KB kick seven a few years prior and then Dermot's kicked eight and Lou Richards goes, well, that's the record. He probably didn't look at a stat sheet. <laughs> That, that, that is... might be right. Anyway, it uh, was a bit sloppy, but to watch Dermot in 85 is the, the, the combination of the things we are talking about before, the, 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 his grace and skill, and there are, there are some of those moments. I mean, he's a bit lucky. It's actually an interesting thing to see how easy a, you could win a free kick um, or a mark. So you didn't have to hold marks in the same way because you hear the commentators say, yep, that's a mark, and it's sort of like touch it three times and it's a mark. 
you don't have to sort of control it in the same way that a modern mark has to be held. Uh, and Dermot gets a couple where you'd say, oh, that's not a mark. But in 1985, it is a mark. First quarter on the seven network of the 1985 BFL Grand Final between Hawthorne and Essendon. I think we can expect some fireworks early. Matt gets the first tap out. Lee Matthews gets the first kick and puts Hawthorne into attack, tries to find Brereton. In goes Bomber Thompson, just about through and out. Brereton got one too high, and he'll take the first free kick of the game. Dermot Brereton, about uh, 30 metres out, directly in front of goal. He'd be pretty nervous. That should help a few of the nerves because he's put it through for a goal. Um, and, and similarly, you know, some contact. I mean, they, they always say you can't touch blokes nowadays, but, you know, I, I thought there were a few frees that were a little light on as well by modern standards. But he kicks his eight, um, and a few of them are just ridiculous. I mean, his last goal is he bullocks and um, and kind of pushes player off, and it's just a really brilliant display of athleticism and skill and and goal sense. And, you know, he's just a, he's a gun at this period in 1985. Is Brereton, he could get his name in the record books if that's a goal. It is. Good on him. He's broken the record. Eight goals. That's a fantastic effort, isn't it? Is that his best grand um, final, he, despite the uh, result, the, the team result? Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think, well, he kicks five or does he kick six in 98? He kicks a lot of goals, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, or, or maybe not. Maybe he kicks three or four. So he's very good in 88 as well. And he's uh, he's excellent in 1991. He kicks four goals in 1991 as a broken body. Mm-hmm. He inspires the team in 89 with the two goals in the first quarter and the three by half time, but he fades with the, with the broken ribs and the lacerated kidney. Um, and he's poor in 87, he's okay in 83 and 84, and he's brilliant in 85. So I'd, I'd toss it up between, I think it might be between 88 and 85, but you go with 85 because when you're a one-man team, as Hawthorne were in 1985 uh, in that game, uh, I think you've got to salute the player that stood up. And, you know, he was Hawthorne's best player by... By a uh, country mile. Another thing, too, about the 1985 grand final, and you couldn't possibly not mention it, was, of course, the melee. And uh, Derm's take on the melee is fascinating. The 1985 grand final. It's a, a bit of a story. Alan Jeans, before the game, I mean, he was always dead set against blokes fighting. He used to always say, if you fight, we're one less on the ground. But this day, he thought, well, Essendon, they were a better team than us. They, you know... By and large, better big men, better runners, better midfielders, better forwards, better backs, over the, over the ground. They'd, we could play them ten times, we might win one. We were hoping that that might be the one right at the start of that uh, run. And, uh, and uh, Yabby Jean said to us before the game, all right, if they want to be tougher than you, today run in and fly the flag. Now, if there's something going on, I normally say to you, get away from it, play the footy. Today, run in. And fly the flag. Uh, yeah, it was one where he said he lapsed into his jeansy impression again, and he he did a uh, you know like boys. I normally do not want you to hurt the opposition and to engage in violence, but uh, today if it is on, I want it to be you know for you to assert yourselves and fly the flag. So he, he basically jeans realised that Hawthorne were the inferior side. I think Dermot, in his very uh, modern media man, analytical hat on, sort of said, look, if we played 10 times, 
Essendon would win nine and we would win one. That's how dominant Essendon were in 1985. And so it, it was a sort of miracle, it was miracle type thinking from Jeans and belting them might have been <laughs> their best shot at it. And so Jeans says fly the flag if there's a if there's one on. And so there's the lightest of sort of uh, moments involving um, M- Michael McCarthy and another player I can't remember, but it's suddenly it's on and it's a it's a 40 player melee. Even with Dunstall involved, he didn't used to get too excited when the when the when the uh, punches were being thrown. And but Dermot runs in in typical Dermot way, and he just sees Vanderhaar, who he's going to polax in '89 in the second semi, but he sees um, just a little bit of rib cage available to him, and just jumps with both knees. It's just it's just terrible. Well, <laughs> and, you mentioned you uh... more. Him poleaxing Paul Vanderhaar in the 1989 semi-final. I'm pretty sure yeah. they feature it at least four times in the video. By all the ball, oh, Sheridan has ironed out with a hip and shoulder Vanderhaar. This allows Pritchard to come into an open goal. Darren Pritchard kicks. Is that a goal? Yes. Vanderhaar has not moved since he's been hit there by two McCurry. Hip and shoulder. It was hip and shoulder, no doubt about that. Vanderhaar wide open when he was hit. And Dermot Brereton, a great finals player, and that's what finals football is all about. Uh, it is amazingly compelling viewing. Um, I was actually 30 metres away from that hit. I was in that, on that half forward flank. Um, you know, I was on under 19 player watching it with my dad. And I, I remember hearing it, the oh. sound of the jaw hitting his, for, you know, hitting his um, upper bicep. It was just the most sweetly timed act of brutality. I mean, nowadays he, you know, he took him in the head. He'd get four weeks or so for that. But you know, the way that he lifts him off the ground. I mean, it's just so deliberate, and that it requires timing and and kind of a merciless streak. And it's actually amazing how often these really good players, these you know, amazingly coordinated people uh, are also the best at that stuff. You know that 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 when you see Lockett hit, he hits with timing, and and you know you, you just stay hit. And the same with Ablett, and the same with Matthews, and the same with Brereton. You know, there's just a and even Rashudo and Ayres, and and these really fantastically coordinated players are, are sort of dangerous because they know exactly how to time the hits and that one on Vanderhaar if you actually had to locate the greatest and most damaging and most disturbing hit of a player that I've seen in in VFL AFL history where it's not a forearm or elbow or you know a a deliberately dirty it's a fair dig of illegitimate act it is a fair dig but he he also hits the head so (laughs) nowadays he wouldn't get away with it but it is in at the time they all Bernie Quinlan says no no that's a that's a fair enough hip, hip and shoulder that's that's in the spirit of footy you know that's good <laughs> finals footy yeah Van Hart's finding out about good finals footy there and, and you know it's a it's just a different time um, so yeah he 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 has that in his repertoire and in fact that that second semi which they feature extensively um, is, and it's also featured in my 89 book is, is won by Dermot and he, he wins it without getting a possession. 
So for 20 minutes, he goes on a rampage, not not in a violent way. For the first incident, he um, wins a free kick. He tackles Daisy Williams and he just crunches him. He, he bear hugs him, hits him with his chest and basically knocks him out. Daisy Williams was tagging Platten. Platten had one in the first quarter of the, the 1989 second semi. And he had 23 in the last three quarters after Daisy Williams went off. So Dermot changed the landscape of the game with that. And then 15 minutes later, he knocks out um, Vanderhaar with the hip and shoulder we're talking about. And then another one, Andrew Manning gets snotted as well. And, um, and so basically within 20 minutes, three players were out of action. And um, Dermot, um, yeah, Dermot didn't really need to kick or handball the ball to to change Hawthorne's fortunes, and, and he had that capacity. I want to get back to another grand final because we are indeed talking about uh, the man referred to as Five Day, Five Night, Dermot Brereton, um, <laughs> as basically the first half of Dermot's hits and memories are Hawthorne grand finals in the entire video. Um, Hawthorne get another premiership in 1986 over Carlton. And uh, is it fair to say a young, confident Dermot Burton's feeling a little entitled by then? Yeah, so so Dermot post-game, a very happy Dermot, um, is being interviewed by Peter Donegan. Um, and the very straight-laced Peter Donegan gets uh, Dermot in full flight, the peacock feathers flying, uh, describing himself in million-dollar terms, and he even manages to slap down Peter Donegan's looks, I think, in the process. Well done, old boy. Now, look, you're normally such a shy reserve character. Can you put into words how you feel now? Oh, pretty good. I feel like a million dollars. I like the way you look. (laughs) So, So here is an important part of this film. I mean, you start off with young... Uh, maybe slightly less brash Dermot, uh, up-and-coming Dermot, is willing to go the full redhead. Um, he's he's a slight figure with the pale arms and the red hair and the, the huge leap and the the big kick and it's but it's it's certainly like it's, he's a proper teenager. But then he's a premiership player within two years and the red hair disappears and he starts experimenting with uh, with dyes and he, then he goes a bit blonder and then he goes uh, short on the sides, long at the back, getting woolier on top. And then by the mid-80s, as the biceps are expanding into uh, Hollywood proportions, he's just allowing the locks to flourish and they're, they're big bouffant curly blonde locks and and you know when the wet days come it's this uh this amazing kind of mangy blonde mess on top of his hair and then by the early 90s we start seeing a little bit neater on the sides with the the long top and the longish back Uh, and then at the end when he's spent almost as though like samson when he when he's playing at collingwood he's almost a short back and sides with no mullet at all, and he's almost no longer Dermot. I want to go to yet another grand final, and um, his attitude towards the 1988 grand final um, is brutally honest. It was contemptuous. I reckon that's a, we did treat them 
with contempt. Uh, I reckon, though, there was more credence to Hawthorne that the other teams who'd been along the way then, Essendon and Carlton, who were our two major uh, adversaries at that, at that stage, we really destroyed them, blew them out of the water, and Melbourne with a young, fresh team with a good attitude, new approach, uh, an inspiring coach, and quality players. And that being the case, they still weren't quite as seasoned as Carlton and Essendon, who we'd blown out of the water. And consequently, we took about a quarter and a half to uh, you know, probably 40 minutes of footy to find their measure, just you know, eke out a slight lead against them, and then we just worked out that we just it was just it was like a middleweight fighting a heavyweight. He loves that 88 team. So he said the same thing when I was interviewing him just about how powerful they were in 88. I think he feels as though they they mucked up 87. He was sore. He actually told me a great story about the start of the 87 grand final. He was standing on the line and he'd been having been having treatment on a back all season and he had a the talus bone in his ankle was cracked and and he saw um, a couple of Carlton players bully Russell Morris and and he said you know, normally I would have just gone over and smashed one of them, you know, and that was, <laughs> was sort of like, I, I know how to handle that situation. You don't bully uh, my young private school teammate. <laughs> I go over and teach them a lesson, you know, it was said in that kind of matter of fact, Dermot way, he fixes these situations. Um, but then he didn't because he said, oh, I'm feeling a bit beaten up. I might let that one go. And, and it's his main regret of the 87 grand final. And so you sort of feel as though this whole 87 thing was tinged with with uh, regret and anger and a, a need for revenge. And so 88, um, Jeans has the aneurysm and Hawthorne are pretty much given their head by Alan Joyce. Um, Joyce is a, is a complicated figure because to some extent you wonder what credit should go to him. He had such an amazing team to deal with. But Dermot actually offers quite a lot of credit to him and says one thing he did was to allow us to to uh, to be a, a leadership team, allow us to to stay on the same tra- trajectory and and add one additional element, which was, I think, really more violence is the right word for it. So Joyce was very interested in the physicality and allowing the players to be very very physical. And, um, and that, it, almost all the players mentioned that to me when I was interviewing them for 89. And, and Dermot, I mean, that is those highlights that they put in in the second half of that film where Dean Sharon, that's in 88, you know, he just, he flies through screen and just, and just uh, takes out the Platten's tagger um, from the Melbourne midfield. Um, he, and 88, I think, is also the Danny Frawley year. Yes, it is. Um, where he where he just, it's, it's a horrible incident. And, and you actually get a sense and you get a bit of this generally with Dermot that it's never really all 100% his fault. The umpire didn't actually see it, the reporting umpire. I think he was a goal umpire. And what actually happened, Danny was holding me every time I went to lead. Which backmen do that, you know, and you take it into yourself to so you slap the arm off, you tell the umpire to look out for it. Never once did they actually see it. So I said to the umpire, if it happens again, I will take it into my own interest and uh, deal with it my own way. And he said, oh, I'll look out for it, um, the umpire. 
and Danny's held me again just after half time and I threw the arm back, the open hand and the back of my hand must have caught him somewhere that he didn't like and uh, a bit of a backhander and as I'm still running, looking up the ground, the ball's 100 metres away coming towards us, Danny must have just gone bang because I remember this God almighty blow to the back of my head and it was hard so it had to be a fist. I wouldn't think he'd be giving me a flying headbutt from behind. And I've lurched forward, and uh, much to my disgrace this day, this day, I didn't turn around and punch him. I stopped and threw my arm back, and the back part of my arm here must have caught Danny. And uh, must have caught. Well, it did catch Danny, and uh, he went out to it. Now, the umpire came out later and said, I, you reported me for turning around and just going punch with it. And they're two distinctly different actors. So Dermot's always got an explanation for why something happens. And, and his arm throw back on Danny Frawley, which I think breaks his jaw. That's a horrible one. He gets six for it. Um, but Dermot talks about just how, you know, he got punched in the back of the head by Danny and he just threw an arm back and didn't really think about what he might hit. And he got, he just, he just contacted sweetly. So, um, you know, he's, he's kind of disappointed and alarmed that he got six, but, you know, imagine imagine throwing an elbow back and breaking someone's jaw now. You'd be lucky to get six probably, wouldn't you? No, you'd be uh, probably at least a season for that. Um, the other thing too in the lead-up to the 88 grand final is uh, oh, the one that really stands out is Derm telling the story about giving the uh, tip to the punter. Right, that's right. Imagine this getting out now oh, and in the era of... I mean, he basically just said um, to a guy, a Hawthorne supporter who was a big punter, said, what do you think, Dermot? And he said, well, 72 plus. We'll win by 72 plus. It's just going to be a canter. Like, we're just so much better than... I don't get in trouble. One of the few times that somebody said to me, can I back the footy? Somebody before there was legal betting on the footy and this bloke was a big punter. And he said, what can we back it? And I said, I've never backed a game of footy back 12 goals in Hawthorne and this is grand final, it's a 72 point margin I said, I said fair income and this bloke was a pretty heavy punter, heavy connected and I said mate if you don't win I'll I said, that confident I'll spot you half of your, of your stake there's just no way we were going to lose um, and, and it was just it's real, <laughs> so he basically said to this guy that you know that they weren't on the same you know that they weren't in the same league as Hawthorne and, and as it as it proved as well, and he said, you know, that he then described the game and said, look, we felt each other out for forty minutes, where you know there might have only been a few goals in it, but then we went bang. But and the the distance between a newly arriving Melbourne team and an experienced and hardened and peak of powers had an amazing number of Premiership players between twenty six and thirty years of age in nineteen eighty eight. You know, it was, it's rightly regarded as one of the great teams of all time, and it was impossible that they would lose that game, and and that's what Dermot told the punter. <laughs> and uh, and nowadays, I'm not sure you, you really wouldn't want to do that. I don't think, but Dermot wasn't saying he put money on, right? No, he didn't Dermot put money on. He just gave him a tip and said, "I'll I'll give you half your stake um, if you don't succeed." The other thing too, not only did Derm give the punter. The, the hot tip to, you know, get on 72 plus uh, in the margin, gamble responsibly. Uh, it seemed Hawthorne were that confident that their friends at Tip Top Bread also uh, provided some of the post-match celebrations. Yeah, this was the time. I mean, he was the first 
of the brand ambassadors, really. I mean, players, uh, there was, there, I guess there were famous ads from the past in, with Lou and, and Jack Dyer with Forum 25s and, and so forth. But Dermot um, held court on primetime television, not with his own voice, believe it or not. That's I right. actually found that out later. They dubbed someone else in to be the voice of Dermot on the tip-top ads. But certainly the players celebrated it with... Uh, with much bread and much uh, product endorsement. Um, and uh, I don't know how much Dermot had to do with that, but I'm sure it tipped off that. I think it paid for their footy trip. loves Tip Top White High Five. Yep. It's the footy bread. Now they've put oat fibre in, it tastes even Delicious. better. Watch out, kids. With all that oat fibre in it, the grown-ups are going crazy for it. So don't let them pinch your Tip Top White High Five sandwiches. Can we have our footy bread back, please? Good on you, Mum. Of course, not only did Hawthorne dominate in 1988 and you talk about them being one of the best teams of all time, but um, there's one game in that season which is probably the ultimate Dermot game, not in terms of skill, but in terms of character, and that's the one against Essendon at Waverley. So he, this, this game uh, at Waverley is, is, becomes famous because there's a, it, it sort of starts innocuously enough um, I think it's a mark to Dunstall um, and a little bit of treatment after he takes the mark. Um, and so, you know, the players descend and there's a bit of a scuffle and one of the heads in there is the very rough and tough Billy Duckworth. And Dermot kind of gravitates towards him and it looks like it might be on for a moment. And, and that's when Dermot plants the kiss on <laughs> Billy Duckworth's face. And it's... Cover Jason Dunstall. From <laughs> two old starring partners. <laughs> oh dear, wouldn't like to meet either of them in the dark night and be unfriendly. Just a magnificent thing. Um, again, you know, it just wouldn't happen nowadays. This is when people talk about the 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 80s and 90s having big sporting personalities. The idea of laying a kiss on an opponent. Is, is pretty uh, outrageous. And he, he kisses him, and, and Billy seems to uh, quite enjoy the the weirdness of that. He just laughs, and they're both laughing at each other, and they get involved in a kind of a push and shove, which is a laughy push and shove. It's the sort of thing where two guys are testing strength and being balls, but basically there's nothing in it. And then out of nowhere, Dunstall kicks his goal from the mark, and the umpire, Clayton, I think it is, says, yeah. uh, we're not going to count, the, we're going to give a free kick to Duckworth. You've gone overboard with your pushy and shabby. And Dermot just goes bananas. I mean, you actually also would never see a, a player in an umpire's face like that today, I don't think. No. He's centimetres in Clayton's face, just 
yelling. Um, and he's so angry. His body, his mouth guard, he's spitting as he talks. He's furious. His head's, uh, his, his teeth are gritted and, and, and the siren is gone for three quarter time. And, and that's the moment where Dermot starts jogging back, you know, with his, uh, fists clenched towards the Hawthorne huddle and, and the Essendon huddle is between him and the Hawthorne huddle and he just accelerates. He accelerates into a mass of Essendon bodies and the story of it, he tells it so well. When I looked up and thought I'd better run to the huddle, our huddle, Essendon was right in the way. And I went through, uh, ran up to them, thought, no, I'll go through here. Went through, went through past all these blokes and I saw Sheedy go past me. I knew I was on the home run then. I knew I was halfway. Got through to the other side and there was Harvey, there was Bomber Thompson, Dean Wallace, all these types of blokes and they were, and Billy again and they were all whacking me on the head with little protests like that. And got through to the other side and made it out the other side. And Alan Joyce was the coach and he'd already left our huddle, seen what was happening came up to me and told me that was cowboy stuff. So that was a telling off and a half. And uh, yeah, I got a letter from the league suggesting we don't have a rule to cover this type of action, but as from today, we do. So don't do it again. I remember in writing 89, my editor actually, Russell Jackson, dug up a great detail from a post-match press conference with Kevin Sheedy that day. And he was really almost unable to contain his admiration for Dermot that he would run through a huddle. And he said, uh, <laughs> don't worry about Brereton. He's just another mad Irishman. Um, and that, that quote got in my book. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think there's a there's a fair bit of mutual respect between Sheedy and, and Brereton. So this is, um, yeah, this is Dermot, just extravagant Dermot running through huddles, Dermot, elbowing people and getting six weeks, Dermot, kicking five goals, Dermot, taking hangers, Dermot. And, and at the same time, you're getting these wonderful uh, little vignettes in the video uh, from the, the kind of archival magazine specials that are made about Dermot walking along the beach with his St Bernard and, and uh, Lou Richards doing a fantastic interview with Dermot at, at his dress shop. That's <laughs> right, Dermot's. And, and, Dermot's dress right, shop Dermot's in Somerville. And, and where would you think? Where if you were if you were opening up the height of that? If you were a massive celebrity superstar, biggest name in footy, where would you open your dress shop? Somerville, which I believe is halfway between <laughs> Belnaring and Mornington. Yeah. Um, now I've got a very good uh, bakery that you, I highly recommend going to the Somerville Bakery, but it's not necessarily Chapel Street. Uh, and it, it does feel very 1987, 1988 when you, when you have a look at that, uh, that fantastic interview. And yeah, and Dermot's mum, Jean, who is a delight. She actually rang in on 3RW when I was speaking the other night to Tony Moclair on Overnight. Suddenly Dermot's mum rang up. It was, it was very nice. She's got a, a little Irish lilt, and she uh, and she was talking about what a good boy her son was back in the eighties. She was talking about what a good uh, dress shop worker he was, <laughs> turning over the mannequins and so forth. The locals are used to seeing Dermot in the window, fixing the displays and pushing around the dummies. He's in business with his mum Jean, and while she's his most avid fan, you get the idea that she could do without the earrings and things. 
if he wants to wear it. That's up to him, isn't it? Yeah, looking at you now, Jen, I don't think you're too happy about him wearing the earring. Oh, I'm not wrapped. Do you go to the football of a Saturday to see Dermot play? We never miss. Never miss, Lou. And uh, how long have you been following Dermot? Oh, since he was about six. Brereton might be a toughie in some people's eyes, but not to his mum. Well, he's a very good son, put it like that. Placid lad, is he? No, he's not placid, no, but um, he's very good. How many shifts do you reckon Dermot did at his dress shop? I somehow think that Dermot didn't work, didn't, wasn't there that often. No, I think Dermot's at the dress shop was very much jeans, um, <laughs> but but she, he did lend a name to it. Uh, and and But at the time, he, he worked at the VFL, and one of the other best anecdotes I got for 89 was... Um, there was an article written at the time of his VFL departure where he wrote off the media manager's car. He, he basically left the car door open in traffic and the car got the door removed and Dermot with full swagger chucked the keys onto the media manager's desk and just said, um, you might have lost the door on your car. <laughs> um, and Hits and Memories has a nice vignette where he, he gets reported and he's working on level one at in the VFL promotions and uh, tribunals on level three. He said he was able to duck upstairs to get his two match suspension <laughs> at 5.30 and then, uh, and then back down to level one, pick up his bag and off home. Very convenient. The tribunal night, I was actually working at the VFL at that stage, as it was known. I worked on the first floor and the tribunal hearing was uh, uh, adjudicated on the third floor of my business. So uh, I just caught the lift up to the third floor to go to the tribunal. I finished at 5 o'clock and tribunal started at 5.30, so I had a drink or whatever and then caught the lift up and got two weeks, went back down and went home. He was a regular feature at tribunal night, Dermot, so it was convenient it was held at his workplace. He, he was. He actually missed 30 games, I think, through suspension, which is an incredible amount of footy. It's a, what's a season and a bit. And then when you keep in mind that his body kind of fell apart at the end. You, you, you sort of forget that Dermot only played 180-odd games for Hawthorne. He got over 200 when you add the Sydney and Collingwood games in. He actually played exactly the same number of games as Cyril Rioli. I remember that comparison being made when Cyril retired. Um, so, yeah, it, it is actually a, a shame he missed so much footy with suspension. Um and you do wonder, you know, did that blunt his career? But at the same time, I guess you're saying, and he would say that that he was feared. You know, there was a <laughs> that to have someone out there that was capable of going off tap and and hitting you with the sort of uh, you know damage that he inflicted on um, various players that cost him big stints on the on the sidelines. You know, it's a weapon. Uh, and yeah, he was he was he was up there a lot. Okay, okay, Tony. You've written the book on it. You've literally written the book on it. 1989. This plays a big part in Dermot Burden's life, Dermot Burden's career, and of course, Dermot Burden's hits and memories. The 1989 season, and um, what it does have in the video, and I'm very appreciative of this, is it has highlights from I like from what I like to refer to as the entree. Uh, and that is, of course, the Hawthorne-Geelong game in round six of 89 played at Prince's Park. Uh, round six is the the forerunner, the precursor, the entree. It is a delight. It is a home and away classic. Um, it's, in the, it's in the top 
five uh, games for the most points scored, and it's the only one where the difference is less than 10 points. So there's obviously been some games where there's been gargantuan scores kicked by one side to get that total up. But this is the only one that's close, basically. Um, and and what's so weird about it is you get the, the turnaround as well. You've got um, Geelong kicking uh, seven goals in 12 minutes in the second quarter with Gavin Exel on fire. Uh, Gary Abbott playing his 100th game and, and just being in, just scintillating. He does everything. He takes hangers. He kicks goals from the centre square. Um, uh, as Malcolm Blight told me, he was best on ground by an absolute minute at halftime. Um, and, and, and Geelong lead by 49 points at halftime. Just a phenomenally big lead. Um, and I think they kicked, they kicked 17 goals in the first half of footy. And, and Hawthorne don't even look that bad. It's, that's what's sort of weird about this game. You're sort of like, how are Hawthorne, they're not, they're not dispirited. Hawthorne themselves have kicked 10 or 11 goals. And, and Bacanara had a 16-touch quarter. And, and Platten has 25 or 30 in the first three quarters. It is an incredible game. And there's a backstory to it that I learned whilst writing the 89 book, which is that Blight had this harebrained idea of, of playing same man on same man. He named the player. You had your opponent, and wherever that opponent went, you had to go. And so there's this weird point where Ablett, who's best on ground, as he says, by an absolute minute, um, Gene's moves dipper off him because he's getting towed up and moves into a forward pocket. But because of same man, same man, weird blight tactic, Ablett has to go with Dipper. He's been the assigned player for Ablett for the day. So Ablett, best on ground, is suddenly standing in a back pocket next to Jason Dunstall. And and taken right out of the game. And, and even whilst that happens, Geelong continue to rampage and dominate that first half. But at halftime, um, Jeans basically said, look, we're going okay. We can win this still. Just need to kick five goals this quarter and, and six in the last. And, <laughs> and Hawthorne did more than that. I think they kicked, um, they kicked 17 goals in the second half themselves and, uh, and basically just lapped Geelong. They were more than 20 points up with... 10 minutes to go. It's a, it's an incredible game of, of scoring. I don't think it touches the 989 grand final because it's almost a little bit, you know, free flowing. It's so attacking that it's, it doesn't have the same collision and, and brutality as the grand final, but it's certainly shows what both those teams were capable of. Let's go to the 1989 grand final, a subject you know plenty about because, as I mentioned, you've written the book. Uh, I want to bring up a couple of things uh, from a more visual perspective of the 1989 grand final. And I don't know about you, but uh, I can't watch the Mark Yates, Dermot Burden incident not in slow motion. I think it looks best in slow motion. It belongs in slow motion. You can't watch it in real time. This is reminiscent of the... Final Dermot Brereton down. I mentioned how Yates came through the centre, didn't have eyes for the ball, just went straight at Brereton and has put him down. A bad miss for Hawthorne because he's the one who can really get them going. Now watch this on replay. You see Yates, there he is, number coming off the uh, wing there. He only had eyes for Brereton and goes over and bumps him again, but obviously he's done his ribs. Oh, 
and they knew this in hits and memories as well. And so they gave us what we wanted. We wanted the slow motion spew is mainly what you want. Mm. So when Dermot is hit, he jogs and he yells and then he spews. That is just the best thing that's ever been in a VFL, AFL uh, highlights video. It's just so good. Well, and, I mean, um, it, it opened 100 years of Australian football, the 96 doco, and it's it has that recapping from Dermot and Jeans uh, and Dipper, I think it is. And in this one, they grab from a documentary called Behind the Battle of 89, where Dermot talks about getting hit down the middle, um, his elbow going into his... in his elbow going into his organs and starting to convulse. And he describes the impact as like being hit by a small car. And then he just starts yelling and running. Yeah. It's spine tingling. He's, he's, <laughs> he's slow-mo run forward. And from the same doco behind the battle of 89, they grabbed Bucky, Gary Bacanara's statement that Dermot had just gone sheet white, that he was, he was just pale like a ghost and, and looked like he was just, so sick. And I saw Dermot after he was hit, he was white, physically white with pain. And uh, for him not to go off, he, he refused to go off and he refused to surrender. And uh, and then, of course, I think it's uh, 200 seconds after his uh, kidney is lacerated and his uh, ribs are broken, he backs back and takes the mark, really, that, that establishes in as a legend beyond anything else. Dermot Brereton, as always, relishing being in the thick of things. Down in the first 15 seconds of the game, a chance to kick Hawthorne's second goal from 25 metres out. He's put it through. I asked Dermot and he said, without 89, I'm probably remembered in a different way. But because of 89, um, you know, in some ways that, marked his career and, and, and i think it is that mark running back that that did that the video does of course highlight him and mark yates uh, and uh, features a clip from an interview they did on the footy show and i get the feeling both yatesy and dermot now have this act down premeditated was it you and malcolm blight you put your heads together and said we're well, right let's fix dermot up first bounce it was a plan yeah, that was it well tell us how did you go through it the week before a grand final how did you actually plan out what you're going to do well, it actually started probably uh, in round, was it six? Dinner? Six, yeah. Princess Park, and uh, I had a very uh, sore testicle for about <laughs> four or five weeks. Yates and Dermot launched my book at the Grenfell Hotel, and they did the show again. It was very funny. It was in the heart of Hawthorne, of course, Grenfell Hotel, and Mark Yates started with, oh, g'day everyone, I'm the only Geelong person here, I've come along, heart of Hawthorne, couldn't knock you over on grand final day, but um, just want to say I'm, you know, positive for COVID-19 and I plan on infecting you all by the end of the night. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was his, <laughs> that was his start. And it was just done really well. He's such a laconic Mount Gambia boy and, and he's and, and they have it down pat. They really, you know, they they have even reenacted it in front of seven hundred people at big corporate lunches where Dermot holds the microphone and stamps his foot and fake vomits in slow motion and and, and Yates describes the you know the takeoff and Yates had to move Michael Schultz. So Schultz was playing on Dermot <laughs> and uh, was standing between 
Yates at his takeoff point and Dermot and, and Yates had to kind of make eye contact with him and say, oh, Chelsea, other side, you know, so, he, so he'd have a clear run at him. Yeah, that, so it, there is that sort of pre-planning to the hit and, the, and, and, and there, there were, me, you know, there were mechanics to work through uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's quite macabre in the sense that it was so effective and, and it hurt him so considerably. Um, but as Dermot said, because he kicks two in the first quarter and, and sparks Hawthorne in the end, it creates the, the ultimate Brereton legend. And so the legend is consolidated. He passes blood at half time. Um, he's told to drink a lot of water. He goes back out there. He finishes the game. He becomes Dermot, the man who survived the hit um, and to tell the story many, many times and beyond. 1991 is his last hurrah. And it's actually interesting in, in Hits and Memories, he says, look, if you're ever going to judge me, can you do it by anything that happened before the semi-final of the Foster's Cup in 1991. So that's a pre-season competition. And they, he then, uh, the highlights of that game are just spectacular. Dermot is soaring. He's, he's still jumping. He's got acceleration. He kicks his long goals. He, he, he still looks like Dermot. Um, and, but a week later, and they even show this as well, there's a grand final against an emerging North Melbourne and Dermot finishes the game on the bench, and uh, and Dur and Hawthorne go on and they win quite well in the in the decider. But Dur and Dermot's actually asked how many how many of these. So down to the boundary line here's Birdie. Yes, sir. Dermot, well done again. How many is that? Um, I don't want to sound too uh, cocky, but I don't really know. <laughs> I honestly don't. He he just fluffs his lines he just says i just don't know um <laughs> but he was also injured and it's it's a turning point that day for Dermot because this is the beginning of the end he goes from being the force in the semi-final of the Foster's Cup to being a someone who's on the bench at the end of the final and he is hurt for the start of the 1991 season and he somehow nurses his body through for the two old, two slow hawks to take on the rampaging Western. Uh, he somehow nurses his body to get through to play in the grand final where um, the two old, two slow hawks take on the rampaging West Coast Eagles. And the Eagles were probably dudded in a travelling sense. There were all sorts of play footy in Victoria rules that didn't uh, suit them in 1991. But... Hawthorne exploited it and just knocked them over with experience and skill and being the better team on the day. So the, as Dermot says in the post-match, the better team on the season was the West Coast Eagles. The better team on the day was Well Hawthorne. done again. Another magnificent performance by the Hawks. Yeah, very lucky again, aren't we? We're very fortunate to be this night. I don't think uh, luck comes into it. They worked very hard today and they're totally committed. Yeah, I, I feel a bit uh, sorry for Eagles. You know, they're the best team throughout the year for sure, but uh, they weren't the best team in the final, so uh, they'll learn from that and they'll probably be the side to beat next year. Grand final experience comes into it a lot, doesn't it, Dermot? And uh, you've certainly had a lot of that over the years. I think so. They're, they're, uh, you know, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't have kicked with the wind in the first quarter because uh, it takes a bit of nerves, you know, I mean, there's a nerves there and it takes a bit of getting settling down and getting used to it, so they weren't going to kick many with it, whoever kicked with it in the first quarter, so work hard into the wind first quarter and then take full advantage of it 
two quarters later on. All right, thanks, mate. Enjoy the celebrations. My pleasure. Thank I you. I kind of see the media analyst term emerging. He even talks about the wind on grand final day 1991 and says, what did they kick with the wind for? Because the start of a grand final is always an arm wrestle. You know, when you, everyone's burrowing in and smashing into each other, you don't want to you don't want to have a big wind advantage because they're really high scoring quarters. And so he basically said that he would have kicked against the wind in the first quarter in order to exploit the wind once some of the 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 heat had gone out of the game. Um, well, it was a, it just, you can hear that know-it-all Dermotness that you get in the special comments nowadays. It's right there as he's standing there as the, you know, the five premiership winning star has kicked another four, played another blinder really given the state of his body um, and cemented himself as the big time player of the generation. He has a bit of a topsy-turvy time uh, towards the end at Hawthorne and it, it kind of ends in tears. Uh, and eventually he leaves when uh, the Hawks have to take massive cuts after years and years of success and he somehow ends up at the Sydney Swans in 1994. And it was a pretty terrible time for him, for, for lack of a better word. Oh, it's, it's actually really interesting to watch this. I'd seen it, some of the story told in an open mic, but it was told really well and hit some memories. And the, the, the bit I didn't understand at the time was that Dermot was offered a base contract of $7,000 and then $1,500 a game so that if he played... His average 16, you know, he gets suspended every year and he gets hurt every year. He plays 16 games. He was thinking he might make 30 grand or something and that that wouldn't work in terms of supporting his family. And you just sort of see Dermot's point of view. It's a disgrace. And, and in fact, Hawthorne did it to quite a lot of the senior players and Dermot rattles them off in hit, hits and memories. Uh, Greg Deer, James Morrissey, we were all told uh, you're on minimum wage. We're all multiple premiership players. And they told us you're on $7,000 a year base and 1500 a game. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if that works out to be a good year, let's say I play 16 games, you know, I'll, I'll take away about $35,000. And really, I can't tell my wife and family, let's budget this year on $35,000. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. You can't live on that, not with, you know, where we'd come from and the commitments we had. Gary Ayres has never retired. <laughs> he was just delisted. Um, the same James Morrissey was let go. Uh, all these players that were the doyens of the late 80s basically faded out in the early 90s. And Hawthorne may have been facing a numbers crunch. I think it was probably just that the the balance sheet wasn't looking as healthy as it should, given their dominant period. And, and and the evidence for that would say that if given they hit merger country in 1996, the signs may have been there as early as 1993, which is when Dermot's being shown the door. So you get the whole drama of Dermot um, choosing Sydney. And he there was an offer from the Western Bulldogs as well. He would have preferred to go to Collingwood, which is where he ends up a year later. Brereton, meanwhile, hasn't wasted any time in weighing up his options. He met Footscray officials this morning to discuss a move to the Western Oval, but he's almost certain to move to Sydney. Yeah, look, I, I probably would have worked better if I had have gone straight to Collingwood, but they couldn't make up their mind quick uh, enough. Yeah, Dermot in Sydney, it's uh, 
it's an interesting little phase, isn't it? Very much a forgotten phase. The, the most memorable moment of it is the stomping of Raiden Talus of all places. The idea that, you know, this sort of really ugly act happens where Dermot trained every day of his adult life at Glenferry Oval. There's no footy played at Glenferry Oval. <laughs> so he is not able to play in the, because of the way the clearance forms were going through or whatever, he was unable to play in the seniors. And so he played reserves. He got a special permission to play in the reserves. And the Hawthorne players, these young whippersnappers, uh, start mouthing off at him. And he, he clarifies that it's not Raiden Tallis who was one of the ones that were mouthing off, but he was frustrated. He was maybe not playing as well. He was sore and he put his foot on Talis's head. And, and as I said, German has a rare knack to be able to defend almost every action that he's ever committed in his career. And he sort of says, oh, I didn't step on his head. And, you know, I meant to, I missed it. And Raiden says that I didn't get him in the head. But did you watch that video again, Dylan, and go, no, nah, he got him on the. He, he got him on the head. There, but he? I also love in the video how Dermot is obviously filthy on the Channel Seven news crew for trying to get shots of him playing football. And Raiden Tallis wasn't one of them, but one of them had a go at me. Raiden Tallis marked the ball, uh, played on, grabbed the ball, and I tackled him and tackled him very solidly and put him into the ground. And uh, much to my absolute regret i threw him down the ball came around that way and i recognized raiden was right in front of me here and i thought i'm going to run over the top of him here and go chase the ball and i thought i'll stand on a hand an arm a finger something like that make him earn it much the same as a careless riding charge and lo and behold uh, it looked like my boot hit his head but as radar said he said no, never got me he ducked the head as he saw the boot come past him like that and it was a reserves game on a Saturday, which isn't telecast, but a news crew was there and they took about 10 minutes footage of me. And unfortunately, the 10 minutes footage they got of me was uh, when this incident happened and uh, I got pinged for it. They took it up to the tribunal. That's right. He said, oh, he said, no, it might have been Channel 9 or was it Channel 7? It was Channel 7. Yeah, he said, well, Channel 7 came for 10 minutes. They shot 10 minutes of the game and then they got me stepping on his head. Yeah, he's basically saying he's pretty unlucky you know, that uh, if you're going to take 10 minutes of the game, he didn't step on any other heads that day and they just were in the right place at the right time for a very big footy news story. Dermot then eventually plays his first game for the Swans and it's actually a win against Melbourne. And there's famous footage of Derm being absolutely pumped up after playing in his first win for the Swans over Melbourne at the MCG. And he's like, these are real blokes. This club's got character. This is the best thing ever. The Swans had finally unveiled glamour recruit Brereton. He was in everything as usual. One in about 30 odd. These blokes have got real character, real heart. These are real blokes. I'm showing my age here, Tony, but... Um, one of my earliest memories of going to the football was actually seeing Dermot play for the Sydney Swans. Um, and I vividly recall him karate chopping my favourite player, Tony Free's jaw. And I think six-year-old Dylan has never been able to forgive Dermot, to be perfectly honest. Well, there's many people who can't forgive Dermot for many different actions. Uh, St Kilda supporters, I think, really struggle with the Danny Frawley one. Uh, but 
I guess you took the good with the bad. As Hawthorne supporters, we just love him unconditionally a little because he just led us through the wilderness so many times. Um, it is. I remember that hit as well. I actually forgot it was Sydney Dermot. I think I've wiped out most memories of, of Sydney Dermot. I've pretty much wiped out Collingwood Dermot as well. And I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised when the footage of the Anzac Day game in 95 comes on and there he is running around. Of course, it's the sad show that day in the draw between Essendon and Collingwood. But Dermot, for a man who uh, is sore, who's at the end, he actually says in the video that he had a vertical leap, I think, of 76 centimetres in the mid-80s at Hawthorne and by 1994... 95 his vertical leap is down to 42 centimeters he's pretty much been cut in half as a as a jumping footballer um and he's only 29 or 30 years of age um the those to, to go out like that it, it is a bit of a shame he, he relied on body work and he relied on nous and he relied on his very straight and good kicking but but although the Collingwood thing went a little bit better than Sydney the year before, there's still sort of years to forget as far as I'm concerned. It's their weird years. What is he doing in those jumpers? Just doesn't feel right. He's a Hawthorne man through and through. He played for three clubs, but he's clearly a Hawthorne man. He is. And, uh, and that's been proven too in the way that he has uh, lived his post footy life. He's, he's very, uh, ebullient in his love for the brown and gold, I think. You know, he's been on the board and um, he's the, the Cyril love thing was really pronounced with Dermot. And, you know, he celebrates hard and calls Essendon the dirty, rotten bombers. And there's, there's I, I, I like that element of Dermot. I'm a Hawthorne supporter. I'm sure it rubs some people up the wrong way. But, but basically, I find him to be a charming and likable person. Um, and, and and that's actually interesting because it probably leads on to his media persona and, and how he comes across in this video as well. He throws one out there, actually. He says, you know, when he started to appear in the media, uh, people used to call in and he'd be putting his personality out there on radio and and they'd say, you know, when you were playing, I always thought, you know, Jason Dunstall's this upstanding citizen, never throws a punch. You know, he's just a, a, a good, solid citizen and person and you're the rat bag and then now on um radio it's kind of jason dunstall who's the grumpy <laughs> bum and the misanthrope and the person who seems not to like people and you know he's become the chief and has that bounce persona of not being particularly likable and it's dermot who actually loves people he genuinely loves people he asks any person that you that he dermot meets he will find out something about that person and, and make an effort to connect on the level of of, of knowing a little bit about that person. Shout He's a rare celebrity. He shouted me beers after the 2017 grand final. There you go, about the pub I was at. He was there too. There's, there's a good derm story for you. Um, Everyone's got a good derm yeah. story. If you hate him, you just haven't met him. <laughs> exactly. He's one of those types. Uh, the uh, video is obviously mostly revolved around 
his football, but there's probably a third of it devoted to Derm's media career. So it kind of starts off with Derm's um, an original spots on the Shut Ernie no Sigley uh, morning show. Yes, here we are back, and we'd like to introduce to you now Mr. Dermot Brereton. What happened yesterday? Why didn't you come to sleep in yesterday morning? You were supposed oh, to be here, and you wasn't here. No, yep. I thought I wasn't meant to be here. Oh, weren't you meant to be here? Yes, no. Sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, so he, he was asked to come in. They basically seemed to be struggling a bit with uh, one of the world's great misanthropes uh, and uh, I would have said fortunate media talents in Sam Newman. They'd had him on Ernie Sigley and it wasn't kind of working. And so um, Dermot got the nod for just a seven-minute segment on, on middays when Ernie was on with Denise and uh, there's a great bit. What about when he goes down to Bell's Beach and does his special on surfing? And it's just got so many bikini shots. They, they, Opens with a bikini shot. They clearly back had to a bikini shot. They clearly had the same cameraman that were working on the cricket with those bikini shots. <laughs> there were so many of them. And it just uh, and there's a bit where Dermot runs out into the surf, and then. Some cornball ending where he saves someone from the serpent. Who who was it that he saved? It was it was obviously someone in, involved in the show, but it was just such a clunker of a gag to finish his uh, segment on. Um, um, and that gold keeps on flowing. I, I remember um, in 1992, I, I sang a version of American Pie at the Player Talent Night to the day the wobbles died. But Dermot, sang you can leave your hat on with uh with backing singers and they got hold of that footage i remember that playing on midday with ernie sigley and denise and that singing theme that singing theme is continued in the video because and and ernie and denise weren't afraid to make dermot sing singing with Dennis Water, but he kind of gets away with it. He can't sing, but he's he's got the kind of warmth and the dimples and the smile and he's he just is a participator and and and, and even though it sounds horrendous, um, it's there's still a likable element to it all. The videos made at the time when Dermot has made the move from being a channel a comfortable channel nine personality as he describes it, to making the big move to Channel 7 to head up a, a rival footy show from The Footy Show. This is great. So The Footy Show is a colossus from 1994 onwards and, and Channel 7 are in a in a state trying to find some sort of competitor, competitor to it. And I remember various incarnations. There was four quarters at mm-hmm. one point. But Dermot appears on the game. He's poached over from Channel 9 to appear on the game. And he, and he gives a very frank, in the moment, you know, time of video release statement about how much he's enjoyed going over to Channel 7. Yes, there are going to be some challenges because, of course, Channel 9 are dominant in this football entertainment space. But then I love how he throws his pay packet in. He says, I'm getting paid a bit more here. So that's good on that front. Security-wise, I reckon it has been uh, the biggest gamble I've taken. Nine, I was very comfortable. Uh, but 
too comfortable. I didn't have any challenges really. I just didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, the ratings or anything like that. I had a nice wage, but I was always comfortable. I was never on the front line. Going to Channel 7 and taking on the game, uh, that's in a prime time slot, which is, a, I suppose, if you want to have a real go, you've got to have a go at a show in a prime time slot. So it is a gamble. The wages is much better. So that's less of a gamble in terms of the financial. Um, There's also and a... then you see him front, and then you see him fronting up the coverage with Bruce McAvaney, and uh, and Bruce McAvaney throws in an early delicious. That's um, right, to Lee Colbert. Oh, look, three from three, and they're playing pretty good footy, straight up and down footy, but it's paying dividends at the moment. What a delicious night for Lee Colbert. First mm. match for the Kangaroos against the Cats. Well, he's going to be villain and hero tonight. And if he has a horror night, a dirty night, he'll be villain and villain to both team supporters. Overall, how would you rate Dermot Brodin's hits and memories? Well, put it this way. Of all the things I've seen this week, and I've watched a couple of episodes of Chernobyl, and I've watched Afterlife with Ricky Gervais, and I'm coming off a fantastic series called The Plot Against America, and these have all been very edifying. And I feel as though I've learnt about storytelling and filmmaking and art, but I have not had a more enjoyable hour and 40 minutes <laughs> than Dermot Brereton's Hits and Memories for the simple fact that this is my childhood hero lighting up the screen in every facet. You have his brilliance, you have his violence, you have his eloquence, his dimples, his charm, and overall, uh, it was just a, an hour and 40-odd minutes well spent. So so I'll be tuning into the podcast to hear what sort of heights Australian football video might hit. And um, Seven's Magic Moments is certainly one that's very dear to my heart and, and, and maybe is the true gold star standard as far as their label. But this is surely right up there. Um, you're going to struggle to find a more compelling figure who can do it both on and off the field. Yes, Gary Ablett, you might be able to have a highlight reel that surpasses Dermot's, but can you tell the anecdote around the event? And Dermot can do that. Um, he is interesting, he is intelligent, and he's my favourite. So thanks for having me on board. Wilson there discussing Dermot Brereton's hits and memories. If you want to watch Dermot Brereton's hits and memories, the link is available in the podcast description. Tony's also got a book out at the moment, 1989, The Great Grand Final. It's available at all books, all good bookstores, all leading bookstores, but you can also buy a copy at Tony Wilson's website, tonywilson.com dot com dot au he'll even sign it for you if you haven't read the book yet i'd highly recommend it it's a must read for all football fans doesn't matter if you're barrack for hawthorne or geelong this is brilliant football storytelling and uh very much uh, i think anyone who listens to the australian football video film festival would uh, dig this book you are listening to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach. A big thank you for all the kind reviews and feedback we've had whilst making the podcast over the past few weeks. It's been an absolute pleasure to bring it to you. 
don't forget to check out our sponsors, the themightyleagetees.com.au. Just some fabulous gear there. Just stock up uh, whatever you do. And, of course, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook and Twitter page at AFV Film Festival. Coming up next on the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Now, if you're listening to this on a weekly basis at, say, at time of release, we're going to have the bye for a couple of weeks because at the moment we are currently in the process of producing our series finale, which is devoted to one of the holy trinity of Australian football videos, Electrifying 80s. And who better to give us a summary of Electrifying 80s then, well, these days he's a prominent cricket broadcaster and journalist, but as a child, he watched this video on a weekly basis, Mr. Adam Collins. And both Colo and I are going to present a year-by-year breakdown of electrifying 80s in a two-part epic you cannot miss. It will be worth the wait. And a video like Electrifying 80s, we believe, deserves a two-parter as part of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. A big thank you to Nick Bleeker for his studio use and facilities. Of course, leaguetees.com.au. And my guest this week was Mr. Tony Wilson. My name's Dylan Leach. We'll catch you soon.